and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about procedural generation. Sometimes it's just easier to let the computer make the game for you. To help me discuss the many facets of procedural generation is a man who always digs straight down in Minecraft, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Oh, man, I'm fine. I just uh, spent my whole morning trying to deconstruct this obsidian penis that someone erected in my Minecraft house. So thanks for that. Um, I have a few leads on who it might be. That was a good, that's actually a really good verb for that. Erected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jared, we've, we're like the same people that we were when we were 12 years old. I mean, I hope so. I try to stay young. <laughs> Never grow up, never grow up. I'm actually, I'm really excited for today's episode because we found a topic that uh, I can talk about Proteus and it's not shoehorned in at all. Oh God. Okay. (laughs) All right. But uh, I'll brace myself. uh, I'm also, I'm also excited because we have a fabulous guest with us. You know her from her work as a senior video producer at GameSpot or her appearances on various podcasts and shows around the web. Now she's a producer over at Twitch. Please help me welcome Mary Kish. Mary, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm having a super, super lazy afternoon today, so I'm great. I'm glad that we could break nice. your lazy day up with some uh, some work on your days off. Yeah, some work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's still lazy. I, I plan on laying down for this entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, Mary, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I'm I'm always blown away by by how generous so many of our guests have been. It's totally cool that you uh, you said yes, so thank you. Oh, happy to happy to be here, and it's a cool topic that I'm really excited to discuss. Procedural generation is really fascinating, and it's in several of my most favorite games made of all time. So it's a really good excuse for me as well to talk about like my favorite games. Now, for people who aren't so familiar with you, what what's your background in video games? How did you get involved, uh, I guess, professionally in games? I originally worked for a really bad indie or like a publisher for Wii games, uh, Zoo. Um, and it was not a very good company in terms of like the games they made. They made some of the worst games uh, ever rated, including Deal or No Deal um, on Ooh. the 3DS. Yeah. Uh, here's a fun fact. Um, the money is in the same suitcase every time. <laughs> no. <laughs> my suspension of disbelief. Oh my gosh. It's kind of the... Im- important part of it (laughs) all right well i'm gonna go uh cancel my order of deal or no deal now (laughs) (laughs) um i worked there for several years and um we started uh working with indie publishers um we published several indie titles um including vessel and um, i kind of fell in love with these indie games and i thought i wanted to do more stuff with them so i came up with a company uh, called Indie Vidi, where I made trailers for indie games and I helped them with their marketing. I did that for several years. Uh, through that work, um, I met some producers at GameSpot, games uh, that I was like peddling to them and trying to get them to cover. And uh, they said, you know, you should consider working here sometime. And I said, all right. So I packed my bags and I uh, did some freelance gigs for them for several months. And then I finally uh, got the gig. So I, I started working at GameSpot as a video producer and I did that for the last oh, three or so years. It was amazing. Just a wonderful opportunity. And you just recently made the move over to Twitch. How did that come about? Uh, Twitch was, again, quite similar where I 
did some work through them. Anna Prosser was a friend of mine who used to do a lot of hosting gigs at GameSpot, so I knew her through that. She started a new channel on Twitch called Misclicks, which was meant to be a way to play games and try to just have a positive influence. And I think it goes without saying, like, everything should maintain a really positive community, but the uh, entire methodology behind Misclicks is if you come to this channel, have a good time, doesn't matter anything at all. We have zero tolerance for like nasty people it's just like we're all enjoying games and it felt like something i could get behind so i started doing indie lp which was like an indie let's play series on misclicks we did that for a while and they had a position open up and anna just thought it was a good fit and it felt like a good fit to me too my favorite things at GameSpot were doing live streams so i figured i'll just do that all the time <laughs> so i uh uh, you know, with a heavy heart, because I really like GameSpot a lot. I made the leap to do live streams full, full time. And uh, I still play games at GameSpot. I still finish. Uh, I started a series called Resident Evil, where I'm playing all the uh, Resident Evil mm -hmm. games. Heck yes. And I'm, I plan on finishing it. We're on six now. It's, it's been a great ride, a slow decline, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, you got seven in your future, so. Yeah, I'm really excited, and I've avoided spoilers somehow. It seems impossible, but I've, uh, I've avoided spoilers. I've only played, I played a, a demo, so I've maybe played like ten minutes of it. Um, Are you gonna really play gonna on, in VR or just regular? I think I'm gonna play it in regular only because VR doesn't seem to lend itself too well to VOD experiences. It's really hard for people to know what you're doing because your face is covered yeah absolutely um so even though i think it would be a better experience for me to play it in vr for people to laugh and have fun with me typically it's fun to see the person's reactions so i think quite often both uh stream and vod i feel like are better without vr but that's just me i i think some people really like it and i mean it certainly makes you more scared well mary i'm super excited that you're still streaming and everything I watch a lot of Giant Bombs content, and I always loved when you came on Unprofessional Fridays. It's some of my favorite episodes, so uh, oh, I'm glad man, to have I you here. I love those guys. Yeah, uh, UPF is like uh, inspiration to me. I think when I think of like successful streams, you think of Giant Bomb. They're the best. They're the they're the people who do it the absolute best. And I don't think there's any invite they would give me that I would turn down because I just love working with those dudes a lot. So, yeah, it's always a pleasure to hang out with them. Let's jump into our topic. Let's do it. This was something that you had, you had actually proposed, procedural generation. It's something that I, I, I've mentioned it a couple of times. We have this long master list of ideas for topics for this episode, and it's one of the ones that I, I can't believe I didn't ha already have on there. So when you, <laughs> when you threw it out, I was like, oh, hell yeah, let's do it. Yeah, when you guys Seems asked like a no for topics. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, I was like, maybe you probably already did this, but what about this one? And you're like, no, we didn't. <laughs> Like, yeah. Dolan. <laughs> now, procedural generation is one of those things that I think might be a little bit ambiguous. It's not as like cut and dry as something like a boss fight or difficulty settings, which are topics that we've covered in the past. So rather than starting sort of with our history the way that we always do, uh, I think we should start out by maybe defining procedural generation for people who are not necessarily familiar with what it is or how it's used in video games. So... How are we defining procedural generation versus just random, you know, like randomness? 
Steve, Mary, or Mary. Oh, you want me to do it? Or whoever. Do it. No. Well, I'm yeah. just it. <laughs> you you pitched you pitched it, so I'm gonna put you on the spot. No, I I can I can take it away if you want. I mean, I can I can throw in yeah, my you, ideas first. You start, and I will I will respond. Yeah. So the way that I see procedural generation is using algorithms to automatically generate aspects of your game for you without having to go in and do it by hand. And there's there's elements of randomness to it, but I don't know that randomness is necessarily procedural generation on its own. And I, I, I don't know how you guys feel about it. There's some I'm sure there's some kind of Venn diagram between the two, right? Like where they overlap. I agree. I think um, it's about the organic generation of content, whether that be uh, level or story or dialogue. There's there's lots of directions. And it's the interwovenness of it that makes it feel natural and organic. So like that's that's like where the key factor lies with me. Um, there's a lot of games where they say that they're randomly generated, but they're basically pre-made pieces and then they're stitched together. Um, and a lot of people would still call that random generation, but they're still decided in a sense. So the procedural generation to me is when you get organic gameplay um, based on the layering of things that feel random, right? So they're 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 all decided, right? No, none of these are like surprises by the, the developers. They know what they're doing, but they've given you these pieces that are that are able to be generated in such a way that you can create organic original gameplay elements to so something that maybe was unexpected. It might be plotted, but what happened to you was unexpected to both the player and and even the creator. And I think that's what makes it so beautiful probably not a very good definition but it's more of like a overall vision of like any time I experience in a game where I say that's that's done well and that's exactly what was it was designed it was calculated to have that happen I think we're kind of honing in on on a good definition of it I, I think a good modern game to sort of paint the picture for people of what procedural generation is is a game like Minecraft where that world is sort of is continually generated as you're exploring it and you'll encounter different biomes that are all kind of governed by algorithms that um, lay out what they look like and what kind of plants are there and what kind of animals are there. And you may encounter some weird things every now and then, like a like a floating island or you know lava that just spawns in the middle of the air. But typically, it all it all kind of follows a uh, a pattern that once you've played the game enough, you can you can see the math behind it all. Yeah, you can see the rules of the developer somewhere hidden in there. Based on those rules, uh, you can create your own uh, original gameplay. So when I dig through a cave, I will have a different experience than when you dig through a cave. We have the same rules. Mm -hmm. We're playing the same build. Just simply having monsters spawning in a different area can make me become completely overwhelmed and, and, uh, and killed. Whereas, you know, you can dig through the entire thing and find a bunch of diamonds. And so like this, these kinds of unique elements is what makes each person feel like they're having their own original experience. Now, the other thing that procedural generation is used for that people might not be as familiar with is for things like populating worlds, things like, um, like imagine a game like Skyrim, you got a, a huge open world and you got to fill it with rocks and trees and stuff. And I imagine that to some degree they've used procedural generation to plant and place a lot of those trees and rocks so that they're not having to go through by hand and do every single one. And there's other examples too. 
Um, I know procedural generation is used in texturing that it'll it'll be used, you know, so when you're looking at a big open plane of of sand, it's not just the same repeated texture used over and over again that the, that they're starting to incorporate procedural generation in those areas of game design as well. But that's not necessarily something that's generated on the player side that's generated on the developer side and then delivered to the player. Right, yeah, it saves them a lot of time. Yeah. Do do we feel like we've uh pretty well covered what procedural generation is so people have a clear idea? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's a very cool mechanic, but a lot of people have attempted it. I mean, I, I feel like it's very early on. I feel there's like a lot that can be done with it still, and it's really hard to get right because when it's not right, you can very much see that. It's very apparent when things go wrong. Absolutely. Agreed. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just like what you were saying. Uh, when, you, when you don't see it, when I was earlier saying about the stitching of the levels, to me, it's very apparent that just because uh, you're using procedural generation to have them randomly put together. I know when I've seen the same building. So I know what's going mm-hmm. on here. Uh, Diablo will do that where there's like sections that are stitched together. So you know when you're in the same area, but maybe you turn left instead of right next time. That won't feel as organic to me as uh, a game that really centers on it or focuses on it. But I, get, I think that's technical limitation. Um, I think a lot of people see the value of it um, they, they're biting off a bit more than they can chew. Um, there's several games that will probably come up over the course of this where they aimed really high, but it just didn't, it, it didn't get there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have a feeling that I know which game you guys are both hinting at, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's, ju- let's jump into our, the history of procedural generation. Uh, cause we, we like to be informative on this show. At least we try. I mean, we got to provide some type of substance, right? Take it away. Throughout the history of gaming, whether it was dice or cards, randomness is a very important part of being able to replay and, and, and enjoy different types of games. So there's been the concept in computing of tying randomness to things like the system clock and other pieces of hardware, which isn't true randomness. Um, in 1978, there was a game called Beneath Apple Manor, made for the Apple II home computer. And its goal was to descend to the bottom of a 10-level dungeon to retrieve the golden apple. But it, re- it featured randomly generated dungeons that was comprised of, you know, like tiles, like we were saying. And they made the map of the dungeon, and each, each time that you went into it, it was a little bit different, so you really didn't know exactly where things are. Um, and we talk about dungeons and dragons pretty much all the time on this, because, I mean, what more of a procedurally generated game is there than role-playing games like that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up D&D because I feel like with this idea of procedural generation, at least in regards to games like Beneath Apple Manor or a game like Minecraft, they're reaching for this idea of like an unending world and a world of infinite possibilities, which is something that ex- that can exist in the human mind. And when you sit down and play a game of Dungeons & Dragons, you've got a DM that's trying to keep you on a, on a specific track but really, you can you can take the game wherever you want. And I think that, that with procedural generation, game developers are trying to get to that point of like, okay, how do I let the player do whatever they want in this world? How do I let them go all the way over there and experience something new and unique? At least for some of these, you know, for some of these examples for games that we're going to give. Mary, have you played Dungeons & Dragons? <laughs> yeah, I've uh, definitely done uh, more role playing in the last like uh, several years, and um, 
I would say yes, but I've only done it uh, for a couple hours at a time. I've never like been officially in a guild or anything. Uh, I'm trying to think like more of like when I play like Divinity Original Sin or something like that, when I'm like hoping for uh, like a lot of these games are like based off of like rolls or luck. You're kind of like assuming that you can you can get there, but you never know. The game doesn't know. You don't know. Nobody really knows if you're going to successfully make said hits. Uh, and that's always like a really exciting uh, moment. It's it's not always just kind of like that XCOM factor. It's not always just ba- based on stats, right? Like you can you can have everything on your side and, and still die. So good luck, you know. And I, I think that's <laughs> that's a part of those beautiful stories um, that it's able to tell that no one really knows what's going to happen in those moments. There's also a game in 1980 that came out. Mary, I think you put this down in our notes here. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with it because everything is a rogue like these days, but rogue came out in 1980 and yes, uh, you want, you want to talk about rogue a little bit? I think we should just briefly touch on the fact that rogue was one of the originals, right? And it did a few things that people to this day replicate, um, which was obviously procedurally generated dungeons. Uh, this again, 1980s, you're like, how (laughs) they did it with, Mm -hmm. uh, very, very simple graphic style. Monsters were showcased in letters. So Z for zombie or D for dragon would appear in front of you. And you'd yeah, have to good old ASCII graphics. Exactly. Um, but the story elements of this were just incredibly well done um, because everything was organic. And this was one of the very first games that had permadeath. So this was like the kind of like the first inklings of you're going to go down there and you're going to absolutely be having a great time and you're going to love your character and you're going to quaff the wrong potion and you're going to die. And that's it. Try again. That's all it is. So it kind of forces the character, uh, forces the player into this kind of time suck where they become obsessed with their character. They meet an untimely end and they want to start again and get that really good uh, game again. And they won't always have that. Sometimes you'll die really quickly and sometimes you'll have these wonderful adventures. Um, but it comes up with a lot of... Uh, Rogue was kind of like this player versus all and you never knew it was going to happen. This original experience that was just based on um, you know, those potions would always have like different results and you couldn't always tell what they were. Sometimes you'd throw a potion at a dragon and it would uh, triple its health and that's just you know tough shit mm-hmm. for you uh, <laughs> it's kind of like that first one that really could uh, break a player down but regardless it made them incredibly interested to play again uh, it was done simply I think that's really so beautiful about it I mean you're talking this is so long ago and it it, mm-hmm. it still is replicated I mean it's a huge inspiration behind Spelunky um, you can see that within it uh, so I, I think it's just it's probably like one of the games which most modern procedurally generated games are inspired by. Yeah, it's funny. So the the game that we mentioned before, Beneath Apple Manor, is considered a roguelike, but actually predated Rogue by two years. And <laughs> it's kind of funny, like that Rogue had sort of the bigger impact on the uh, the gaming world because Beneath you... Apple Manor like is doesn't really roll off the tongue as well. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wanted to know. create a beneath Apple Manor like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you if you see the games side by side, they actually look really, really similar. So it's kind of crazy that these these two individual game developers were making very similar games at around the same time, and they they kind of made these games uh, a little bit out of necessity. 
the early storage for old computers was, I mean, pretty small, especially by today's standards. So people were getting kind of creative with the way that they were delivering content to the player. And if you were going to, you know, build a game that had a hundred levels, you had to have all that, that space to back it up. But these games like Rogue and like Beneath Apple Manor were sort of an answer to that quandary. It was, you know, we're, we're going to essentially set up, um, a bunch of pre-made tiles and then we'll let your computer at home generate the world for you so we don't have to send this game to you on 20 days. Right, yeah, you're not just... you're not trying to store hundreds of assets. So it's kind of interesting cuz like back in the day these roguelike games were made almost out of necessity to deliver that RPG experience to the home computer where today it seems a little bit more like a uh, like a creative decision. Like I want to I want to make this kind of game that has this kind of feeling, so I'm going to implement procedural generation to to create these levels for the player. Yeah, you're looking for people to have a very specific experience with that type of game design. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people too now are really emphasizing replayability. That's uh, something that I see a lot uh, when people are making purchasing decisions. Is um, yeah. You know, I'm not going to pay $20 for a game that I can beat in three hours. And it's like, what if you can play that game a thousand times and every time it's unique? Now you've just infinitely increased your hours played and increased the value of, of your title. So a lot of developers are doing it in that sense as well. Now, where do you guys land on that replayability argument? Are you, are you Mary, are you a, f- a fan of that mentality? Do you, do you look at it sort of like a dollar per hour played exchange when you're making a purchase uh no i think that's quite a a dangerous mindset to have and i'll tell you why um i think we have come to a time where um games can be quite devalued um you'll see a lot of things like humble bundle where you can get a game for whatever you want you can pay your own price you can pay three cents and and get a game and it's causing a lot of the public to assume that once you get to a certain price for a game, that that should equal our um, or that amount of value. And um, I don't believe that time equal quality in any sense of the word. And, and it's the only, uh, this is like the only genre I can think of where we like force this expectation on people. People yeah. spend $18 to go see a movie and that's two hours long. And if the yeah. movie is entertaining, you don't hear a peep out of those people, but you spend $20 and you pay a three hour game and everyone's angry that, you know, they're dissecting it per hour. And it's like, if you think about it, your hours should be completely, I've played games that took me 40 hours and I was disappointed. And I, I don't, I don't, think that we should be looking at things in terms of hours, but in terms of the quality of those hours. If you play a game that you beat, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, uh, what was that game that just came out? That story game. Oh, What Remains of Edith Finch. It's not a long mm-hmm. game. What Remains of Edith Finch is probably like what, uh, you know, three, four hour game, maybe longer, maybe five. It's incredible. And it's worth every penny. It's got a wonderful story really interesting gameplay mechanics it's beautiful it's well designed and for someone to have that notion of well I, I would at least expect 20 hours out of my time I would say well then you're 
you're missing out. And I hope that you never watch movies because <laughs> that's the exact same experience. It's not it's not really a an accurate connection. Yeah, I heard uh, I heard Dunkirk's barely two hours long, so I don't know if I want to pay the eighteen dollars to see that one. <laughs> yeah, you never hear anyone say that. It's just like something that people say <laughs> for for games, for our for our medium apparently, uh it should be all hours based. And I do think that's because of uh, we've done this to ourselves. If there is a game out there like Skyrim, for example, where people can just sink hundreds of hours into it, what a value that is. Right. Yeah. And, and there is truth in that. If you can get 200 hours out of a game uh, and you paid 60 bucks for it, that that must have been really valuable for you. And I think that's fantastic. But that shouldn't take away a tremendous experience. That's several hours long that was $20 um so I don't see I don't think it should be a hard line there I think it's a bonus if you got 200 hours out of it that's that's a yeah that's a good way to look at it it's kind of a change in mentality that I've had to develop as I get older because there's so many games coming out and I just don't have the time to play every single game much less you know something that has 60 hours of side quest or optional side quest to do so I've definitely noticed as I've getting as I've been getting older uh, it's it's 100% quality over quantity for me. I don't want to spend another hundred hours in Fallout 4 doing settlement quests over and over again. Like that's that's not valuable to me. Um, yeah, that's a great example of Fallout. Yeah. I think a lot of people found that uh, with Fallout 4. It's, and, and it seems like a lot of people are getting sick of that. So I'm hoping maybe maybe the tide is turning a little bit and people are looking a little bit more for. A, a really nice tight experience but you still see those games that come out with just really like a lot of filler and i personally enjoyed my time with firewatch more than you know i i did tracking down anything in a ubisoft game and getting collectibles and stuff like that so i just gotta <laughs> like force myself when i start to like get like sometimes i do like there's a there's a completionist part of me where i'm like ooh, like an icon i'm gonna go get that um but once i like find myself like kind of getting bored of a game i'm like well i should just mainline this story and then when I'm finished with it, I'm like, oh, that was great. Like, I'm glad, that, but I don't feel like the desire necessarily to go back and get everything. But it's nice to have the option. Yeah, I agree. So I originally heard you on um, on What's Good Games. And over there, you were talking about the idea of streaming indie video games. Yeah, yeah, and, they came and up I with think a new that, concept for it. I think that fits this discussion in kind of an interesting way because these games that are utilizing procedural generation in this streaming marketplace have a little bit of an advantage in that they're able to um, occupy a player's time for a longer duration and thus, at least by the proposed model, make more money. Right, because it was based on minutes played, um, which is really fascinating. Um, and so, yes, that gives it its edge. Um, but what I said in that podcast was I found that negative because now you're giving a story focused games a disadvantage um and those are still quality experiences you just experience them in a different way again like a movie so why should a game that had just as much quality just as much entertainment in my eyes be devalued because it only required three hours of my time so it's an interesting model but i don't think it's a successful model are you guys currently playing any games that would lend themselves to this discussion oh yeah uh, Dream Daddy. That's Dream not a Daddy. game I'll probably play again. <laughs> although, <laughs> although Dream Daddy has lots of replayability because you might get like Goth Dad, but then be like, no, nah, I kind of want to try out Hunky Dad, and like that's cool. 
I can't um, believe that's a game that's everyone is talking about right now. I, I haven't really looked into <laughs> it too much, but uh, I'm like, hmm, interesting. It's a weird game. It's just um, really great character writing, and it's funny and silly and witty, and it's also really good role-playing if you ever like wanted to just imagine what that would be like. And it does a pretty solid job of putting you in uh, that person's shoes. But I will play the game once, and I probably won't probably won't replay it. That'll be like my choice. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that game deserves its quality if you play it once. I don't feel like I should have to play a game 20 hours for it to get its $10. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Jared, what's your what's your ideal dream daddy? What would you be looking for in a, <laughs> in a dream daddy? Mm, um, probably lots of gold chains. Um, maybe Maybe someone with a BMW. I don't know. I, it, You're interested in the material I, things. I, I mean, <laughs> I, was, I think so. Yeah. See, I just, I just wanted, I just want a dream daddy to hold me and tell me that everything's gonna be okay. Oh, that dad I, exists. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think there's BMW daddy. There's, um, there's definitely like a sensitive dad, and there's like, um, there's like a really weird one. There's like a closeted dad who's like a Christian, and there's like oh, a goth. Yeah. It is, Steve. It's actually really strange. Um, yeah, but like the whole point is like role playing anyway. So you're not, yeah. you know, you are who you want to be. I played that game and I was like out for, I was trying to get some and I like, <laughs> I, tried to, <laughs> I tried to go home with the dude and I did. That, I got laid on my first night and I feel really nice. proud of that. Yeah. I'm just, like, just going to be a big dad slut. And I think that that's, that's how you choose to play it. Like, I think that game like lets you choose choose those options i don't think there's a I, i'm trying to think if there's a rich dad there's like maybe i don't think so i think you kind of have to go with emotions there's always like yeah like the goth dude's like really dark and he takes you on a date to a <laughs> um like a graveyard <laughs> <laughs> sounds amazing all these dads yeah all these dads actually sound perfect <laughs> <laughs> they're appealing now, Jared, what are you playing that uh, is utilizing procedural generation? Most recently, I've been playing uh, RimWorld. Are you familiar with that game? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't played RimWorld, but I've seen a lot of uh, people playing it online. It's, it's definitely the kind of game I could lose sixty hours of my life to. Yeah, as soon as I bought it, I easily sunk fifty hours into the game in a couple weeks, and that was a little surprising. But like, every, I think every single thing in that is is procedurally generated. Even the if you click on each one of your your characters in there. They have like a little backstory and stuff like that. And um, I've gotten pretty far, but things can go real wrong real quick. And there is some kind of, there is some scripting is like you get further into the game. Some things will get harder, but pretty much everything is procedurally generated and it's very intense. It's a lot of fun and every single playthrough is different. You really get attached to the base that you're building or the people that you've recruited. So when some of them die and, you actually have to like tell tell your your buddies to like go and bury them. It's like, man, I felt really sad because I was attached to that guy. Yeah. But letting being able to let go, it's like, well, you know, hopefully we'll get some new survivors in here. It's a it's a unique experience that you don't really necessarily get from, uh, you know, more scripted more scripted games. That game reminds me a lot of the old school XCOM game, in that you can like really really screw yourself over early on oh, yeah. and then not and then not realize it till like 12 hours later. But that's fun too because then you end up with a di- whole different style of gameplay that you might not have tried 
you know, otherwise you're figuring out just how to survive and, and deal with the consequences of the decisions that you made. It's really cool. How about you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm perpetually playing Binding of Isaac. It's one of my favorite games. And Binding of Isaac is a roguelike. So it's one of these games where uh, Edmund and his team basically built a, a bunch of pre-designed tiles that get laid out into a dungeon. And they follow, they follow an algorithm in that there's always a way to progress through these dungeons um, with only very, very few exceptions you know everything works out and makes sense you can get from the start of the dungeon to the boss fight and and get through it so you know when we talk if we're, if we're talking about the way procedural generation and randomness are different you know if something was truly random you would end up with these impossible dungeons but yeah it could like very easily break the game yeah and it populates it populates the dungeons with random monsters and uh, every time you play through it you'll get a different pool of items that you're picking up so it, it it takes really good advantage of that uh, that old school procedural generation idea. My f- it's it's funny to think here we are like thirty years later and still playing the same kind of game that that they made back in the eighties. But I love Binding of Isaac. It's also really great to watch too because of that procedural generation. I think that this is one of the benefits of it is it the streaming potential for games that use. Uh, procedural generation sorry jared what were you gonna say oh no i'm just saying like one of my favorite aspects of these types of games is the fact that uh when you start them there's it just seems like everything's so mysterious you're trying to figure out how everything works like you're you're, you most people probably go into aware of what type of game it is and and that how you know it's it was built um when i start to fall off a little bit is once you start to figure out the rules of the world, even though you know it is different every time, you can kind of start seeing and, and predicting some of the some of the mechanics that are going to come up in some of the situations. Yeah, um, and binding binding of Isaac. You know, I've I've talked glowingly about this game on this show before. Um, I think it's done a really good job of having enough secrets that, unless you're like reading an FAQ as you're playing the game that every playthrough there's there's something new to discover there you can you can find out like oh this is uh you know when I blew up this rock it gave me a a soul heart why did it do that oh next time you play through the game you realize that that rock was had a little x on it and now you know every time you see a a rock with an x on it and you blow it up you get a soul heart out of it or you know I, I planted a bomb near this room and and it uh you know blew this wall open why did you know why did it do that so you're continually like learning things so the world itself is kind of simple but then there's enough of these secrets that are layered into it that make that make it infinitely replayable and then just the huge item pool they put into that game um just makes it fun to replay and like i was starting to say it makes it fun to to watch um yeah figuring out those systems and learning what the rules are is a huge part of that for me i, I enjoy that a lot and it, I think it just adds a lot to it the experience I think you came up with like a really cool concept there when you're talking about what makes it unique what makes it so replayable and it's the extra elements that they put in to randomize it so you don't feel like you have found the seams of the world they've hidden it really well um, some games that kind of uh, I would say are really similar in the same vein of Binding of Isaac like Enter the Gungeon or Nuclear mm-hmm. Throne uh, both mm-hmm. of those games are really, they're very similar, right? You're you are fighting to get deeper and deeper in each level. And there's certain rules that you can see within the world, certain types of enemy types. 
And as they get, as you get, you know, further down, new enemy types spawn, you're kind of learning these rules. But Binding of Isaac has enough weird special elements where you never really feel like you've gotten it. You've never really solved it. And because of that, I, I genuinely believe that's, that's why that game holds up so well uh, that those extra pieces of all that extra TLC that was put into that game to make it so unique uh, makes everyone just really interested in, in, in continuing to play it. I, I still think there's secrets nobody's found. Yeah, it's, it's knowing Edmund uh, and the way that they've handled some of the, the characters that they rolled out in that game in the past. I wouldn't doubt that there's stuff in that game that, that has yet to be discovered. Um, no, so I, I brought up streaming, and I have a question for you guys, because I, I know, Jared, you've been uh, involved in the uh, the PUBG scene. Mary, have you been watching PUBG or playing PUBG at all? Yeah, I've been I've been doing my best to play PUBG when I can. Um, it's always interesting to watch. That's for damn sure. Now, do we consider that using our definition from earlier uh, a procedurally generated game? Because the loot the loot spawns are different every time well does that does that fall into this world when we started talking about our definitions of this that was the first thing that came to mind because it's not it doesn't really feel like procedural generation in my mind it's just it's more of like a a random uh they call it you know people call it rng where it's just luck of the draw i I don't know that that's being procedurally generated in in the the ways that we're talking about here yeah i would say it's more uh gameplay where the player becomes a random the player is unknown uh, because you're playing with oh, real human beings. Oh, I see what beings. you did there, player unknown. <laughs> That's right. Because you're playing That's with human beings from. and they can't, you you can't expect what they're going to do. Uh, you can be in literally the exact same situation. They can put you in the exact same house and there'll be two dudes in two other houses. And it doesn't matter. Like even if the uh, uh, weapons weren't random, right? You will have a different experience each time. So it's not really about the procedural generation that makes that game unique gameplay. It's it's putting you in a world with other human beings that want to kill you. And they will constantly come up with different ways to do it. Whether you take the, the buggy or you swim or you wait it out in a bathtub for 40 minutes like I do. Like it's all it's all unique to the player. Um, so it, that's. That's what makes that game, I think, unique. I, I don't think, uh, I think it's cool that they do that, but I, I don't think that's the uh, hook of that game. Yeah, and I hate the term, but I, you hear emergent gameplay or emergent storytelling, and I think that's more of a, an, an appropriate term for that kind of thing where um, mm. I guess I'll make up my own term. It's more like procedural like experience for everybody. So not necessarily something that the, the game is doing or the system is doing. It's, it's the people uh, changing the way everything unfolds. I got you. I think that's a, I think that's a good way to sort of separate these two ideas. What are some of the disadvantages from using procedural generation in a game? Um, if, Mary, can you think of anything that uh, procedural generation detracts from in game design? Uh, yeah, it detracts developers from making a good game. Um, there's a lot of pitfalls when it comes to procedural generation, and one of the main ones is that developers make the assumption that if you have procedural generation of some kind in your game, that it is replayable and fun. But you have to make a fun game first, or it doesn't matter if it's replayable. Um, a really good example of this is uh, a horror game called Daylight that had procedural generation uh, for the story. So um, as you're trying to figure out... Um, 
I don't know, like, there's, like, a, you know, there's, like, a child that's missing, and you're, like, trying to find it or whatever, and there's a bad guy. Um, this game was reviewed by Kevin Van Ord on GameSpot. He's, like, a tremendous uh, reviewer. He doesn't work there anymore, but um, God love him. He wrote one of the most aggressive lines in that <laughs> review that I'll never forget, which was the irony of Daylight being a procedurally generated game that could be played a thousand times is that it's a game I didn't want to play once. Ouch. <laughs> oh, brutal. And that's, <laughs> that's the fantastic. case. Yeah, it's very harsh, and that's the reality of that game. They set to make something. They used um, the concept of procedural generation, and they did utilize it, right? Like So every time you play it, the story uh, unfolds in a different way. But if the core gameplay isn't interesting, then it has no value at all. And um, I, I think that this is happening more and more. Um, we all know, I'm just going to say it now, like we all know like the, the main one now that everybody talks about, which is No Man's Sky. But like there's been games that have been doing this and making this mistake again and again and again, which is that they're making the assumption that the procedural generation will generate quality gameplay. But if you take that out, um, and you don't have a quality game, then you've missed the damn point. Um, like, literally, if Spelunky was uh, created levels, right? Like, if it wasn't procedurally generated and everything where it was where it was, it would still be fun. Obviously, it would completely not be the same game and it wouldn't be as enjoyable. What I'm saying is, is the, the core gameplay mechanic is still fun. He made a fun game. And then the procedural generation yeah. makes it replayable endlessly. So um, I think the biggest problem procedural generated games is the power that it gives the developers and the assumptions that they can make with it. That's actually, that's a really great way to to look at it from the design standpoint. Um, of yeah, you have to have that fun. You have to have that fun mechanic, that fun loop first, and then you can talk about procedural generation. Um, like Stardew Valley. Jared, what do you, Stardew Valley had just a great gameplay loop, right? Like you always have something to do. You're always working towards a goal, but there was an element of, of, of randomness to, to everything. So when you would, especially the dungeon, yeah. uh, the, the uh, mines, mines are all procedurally generated. Yeah. So you go in there and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what resources that you were going to find, but you, you go down there at the end of your day or however you like to play it. But there's, that was just a part of the game that was surrounded by like the best mechanics. Um, so I think maybe designing your game and implementing parts of it using procedural generation is a lot better way to go about it than I guess just making your game procedurally generated and hoping that something comes of it. Now I'm really surprised Jared that, uh, Mary opened the no man's sky door and you didn't, uh, (laughs) you didn't jump on that train. I, you know, I shit on Ubisoft and No Man's Sky like every other episode, so it's I, I try not to, to to do it. But you know, I, I I didn't have high expectations for No Man's Sky because it just there was people you know for the longest time. What is the game? What is this game going to be? Uh, and I I played it and I was still disappointed. So I don't know. It was just a, it was a very interesting story, but it it definitely applies to this. And I remember. Um... I remember that developer for No Man's Sky was talking about one of the the things that he loved about his own game was being able to be in that world and see the math behind everything, being able to see those algorithms that he had written to generate these star systems and the the 
fauna and the foliage that um, that filled the planets. But I I think that that this game highlighted one of the other issues that comes up when you talk about procedural generation in that there were some weird interactions of stuff. I mean, we've all seen the videos online of like the the giant dinosaur with little butterfly wings flying around <laughs> and and it's because that it's because they didn't like curate those things well enough, I guess. They didn't they didn't set those unless that was intended, unless they they wanted you to have those like silly experiences of finding a a cartoon dinosaur with little wings. Well, I'm sure like under I, the I, hood and on the back end, like it's a very impressive tech being able to go from the planet to outer space and, and there's billions and billions of planets or stars or whatever, uh, I'm sure is technically impressive, but they forgot to make a game part. Like they just forgot yeah. to add a game to it. So, yep. I mean, again, this is, it's not too far from uh, uh, the other um, example daylight. I, I played a lot of no man's sky and I quit. Because it didn't matter if there were trillions of planets, I didn't get past planet 20 because I was bored. Yeah. So you failed mm-hmm. there and you can make a million different creatures. But if you fail to make interesting creatures, right? Um, making monsters is not the same thing as impressing me with uh, beautiful character design. They literally just hit random. It's, there was a, an element of it that felt rushed or just straight up. I think a reason a lot of people got mad about this was it wasn't it didn't just feel uh, confused. It felt misleading. Um, You look Mm -hmm. at the example videos that they that they showcase and those animals were calculated. They were beautiful. There was grass. There was sand. Where the fuck are my sand planets? I never (laughs) came across sand. They they did add in like base building and like you could you could like, well, one of the questionable things that they had was like, you could just like warp back to your home point. It was like, well, okay, that kind of defeats the purpose of, of all the travel and all the goals you've been working towards. But the very first thing that I thought when I got into the game, I was like, okay, I'm doing this, but to what end? Just seeing the yeah. next thing was not, that was not enough of a gameplay loop for me to, to keep wanting to do things. Making money was not enough for me. And I quickly found myself just falling short and I think they were hoping that other people would find other elements that would keep them in it for example the um taking photography of like the fauna and the you know the different animals and stuff would just like really hook people and that's what got me originally but then I just got really bored of seeing the same bug creatures every once in a while I would find something absolutely hilarious and um I think yeah Rob Handlery and I end up making a video on GameSpot about like these vile monstrosities that we came across abominations of nature absolute (laughs) disgusting animals covered in eyeballs and they just like you know they got hooves coming out of their asses and you're just like this isn't what i wanted (laughs) Mm -hmm. i mean i was burned before uh when i was really looking forward to spore when that was uh supposed to be the next cool thing (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we all saw what happened to that. So, like, I yeah, was kind of already like on the it, defensive. Spore. Spore's better. <laughs> you know what? If you want to play uh, a procedurally generated uh, space game, play Astro Near. I mean, that game's cool, and it like sets out to do something and accomplishes it, which is surviving. You like start out on this planet. It's co-op, by the way, too, which makes it rad. 
So you and like a buddy can like start out on a planet and you will die if you don't like make a base where you can uh, breathe oxygen and explore and then you mine for minerals and you make dune buggies and go across this procedurally generated planet. And if you're really good, you can make a like a little ship and fly. Um, is that the but, one where you like have like a little like tether that you like build little pylons? Yes. Okay, yeah, that one looks really cool. I've been I've been wanting to do that, but it definitely seems like a good co-op experience. It's it's rad because the developer sought out for a vision, right? And it wasn't endless stuff. I mean, there's lots of planets in there, but that's his goal wasn't to make a trillion planets. His goal was to get you fascinated with survival and exploration, and you do. Um, so like the core mechanic is there. You like you can't wait to investigate some like underlying caves but you can die all the time if you're not careful so it's like really exciting to kind of manipulate but it's it's a way smaller scale you know i i played for hours and hours and hours i think i only got to visit like two planets but i had a way better time uh i don't even think there's animals in it i don't think they like got that far yet but it's like it doesn't matter you know because like the core mechanic is is a really good hook so i i think a lot of it is like again this this like power balance like what is your goal here like what what do you want the player to do i don't i don't care if the the possibilities are endless if they're all like boring as hell absolutely yeah now mary what what game utilized procedural generation the very best in your mind and you've played a lot of uh indie games which i think is where procedural generation kind of lives but which one which game has has used it the absolute best in your mind well, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you the popular one, which is <clears throat> Spelunky. Uh, Spelunky is the ultimate uh, indie example of proc gen because um, much like Binding of Isaac, it bends the seams. So although you know that you will have three levels before you change to the next area, and you know that there will be... Um, uh, there'll be like a guy selling stuff and you know that there's going to be certain bad guys in each level or each uh, various area. And you know that there's going to be someone that you can save. Hold on. Hold on. I want to stop you here. What do you what uh, what sprite do you change your uh, damsel to in that game? <laughs> I kind of like kind of like the uh, dog. Uh, I love the a, dog. A nice That's what I neutral. Yeah, he's cute. I like him when he. I mean, it breaks my heart if he, like, dies, though. <laughs> or, you, or you sacrifice him on the altar. Oh, it's oh! the worst. <laughs> You're There's enough, Like, you guys are talking about it right now, though. Like, those seams is what makes that game so beautifully done. There's a mm -hmm. lot of rules in that game that have been made. Like, Derek, you filled that game with rules, but he put enough changes in it that it feels incredibly organic. Like, there's different endings based on the way you play the game, right? So it's like, Everyone kind of knows like the the Olmac ending where you kind of like have to beat this giant boss at the end and holy shit it's so hard to even get there at the end that that seems like a triumph but there's completely secret endings based on the way you play mm -hmm. and um and when you find out the first time my god that you find that you can put someone on an altar and sacrifice them um or that you can kill the shopkeeper and get their loot and utilize that to your advantage based on the loot that they have and how early or late in the game that you do it is absolutely a part of that game. And um, it's just those ways that he blurs the rules that he makes in the game that that doesn't make you feel like he's given you a bunch of rules. You feel like you're just genuinely playing a fantastic 
like experience each time you're on this, this incredible journey. And, uh, I mean, by and large, that has to be the quintessential version of what people would consider uh, a good rock gen game. Yeah, and that game's really great. It uses procedural generation well because replayability is a part of that game's design. Oh, you're going to die. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to die. You're talking but about the ending of, of that game, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, there's an ending? Oh, yeah. It's not going to happen for me. <laughs> Oh, good but, Lord. It takes forever to get there and it's just heartbreaking. But yeah, I mean, like even not getting there, it feels pretty quality. Yeah, it, it's about the procedural generation is great in that game because it's about learning each of those systems. And and in the same way that I love Binding of Isaac, every time that you go into the cave of Spelunky, you're learning something new. You're learning some new mechanic or some new secret or some new way to deal with an enemy and uh, it it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily be the same kind of experience if it wasn't procedurally generated. So it's a it's a really well thought out use of that uh, of that mechanic. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's it's calculated in the sense where sure there will be times where maybe there's an arrow and it's hidden really well. I mean, who hasn't played that game and said that's bullshit? Like that is some bullshit. I planned for this. I had like a really good run, and I just I got endlessly killed by an enemy because I got stuck in an area. But at yeah. the end of the day, there is something you could have done to prevent it. Every death in that game is your damn fault, and you have to own it. You have to. You have to come to terms with the fact that you should have been more prepared, right? Like, um, like that time that you have a ninety-nine percent hit chance on someone in XCOM and you miss, and then your character, your favorite character, dies, and you're like, no, that's bullshit. No, you're bullshit. You should have prepared. You should have prepared for that 1% chance, right? And it's like, that's what the game is teaching you. So the very first, what, like six hours you play in that game, you will never leave the first area. And you get mad and you, you, know, you blame shit. And over time, you get better. You learn how to predict. You learn to always pick up a rock and have it so that you can plan mm -hmm. for that random arrow and you can uh, be more cautious. And when you do that, when you watch yourself grow as a character, I really do believe that that's something we haven't touched on yet is the growth of the player skill is a huge mechanic in procedurally generated games because mm -hmm. you will get better. You have to get better. Yeah. You will never be the same person from the beginning to the end of that game. And that game is training you each unique time to better prepare yourself for your next round. And damn, that game does a really good job at that. Yeah. Now, if you learn one thing, one thing from Mary Kish in this in this episode, it's get good scrub. Get good. That's <laughs> um, Sorry, yeah, Jared. I, what were you gonna say? Go ahead, yeah. There was a I forget what it was. Some game that recently came out, and people were complaining about it. And then the developer basically just said, "Like, get good." I don't remember who it was. I just read it an article on the other day. It's hilarious. There was a. I wonder if we're talking about. There was a clip. Uh, from an Overwatch pro player and someone asked him like what do you do when your teammates suck and oh, it's, it's causing you to lose and it's so it's Siegel. making your level yeah. go down and Siegel says like yeah he's like two words get good there's nothing that yeah. prevents you from winning it if you're good enough don't blame <laughs> your teammates and say they didn't do what you said be good enough that they all depend on you win the game yeah. for them or shut up and like that's the reality is like there is something you could have done in every situation. And that even can include not being in that situation. So yeah. quit blaming the mechanics of the game. The game is training you each and every time to get better. 
there's an article that uh, we'll link in the show notes from uh, Gamma Sutra, and they were saying, uh, I'll just, I'm just going to read a little bit from here, but in regards to procedural generation, uh, it says that never lose sight of the fact that more variety isn't always going to result in a better game. Procedural generation is not just content creation tool either. Most games use proc gen for aesthetic purposes to add a sense of alienness or unknown and to add tonal color to the design. Procedurally generated content can fit whatever purpose you need, be that like spore-like adaptive animation systems, uh, Diablo and rogue-esque dungeon layouts, infinite levels, evolving cities, etc., uh, adaptive music, or just about anything else. So, like I was saying earlier, like uh, in, implement it into your game. Don't don't expect that to be the 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 main draw of what you're trying to make. And I think that's yeah. I think that's important. Well, Jared, in, in your mind, what game uses procedural generation the best? Um, I, I mean, the first, I think my first exposure to it was Minecraft. We had a lot of good times running our own servers and just exploring like, oh, man, I just found a giant underground cavern. And it was always a mystery of like what you were going to run into and digging yeah. a hole. And there's a there's a creep behind it, a creeper behind it and exploding. And it was just like most one of the most like horrifying things ever sometimes. And that was like scarier <laughs> than any Resident Evil game, I think. Uh, it, you know, yeah. So I think that whenever I think about it, Minecraft is such an early example of, you know, the, how it's being used now mainstream that uh, I'm, I'm always impressed with it, what they accomplished. Yeah, I love Minecraft. I mean, when I first heard about Minecraft back in the day when it was just sort of making the rounds with game developers or on um, game websites, it, it sounded like what I had always imagined the future of video games to be. This idea that the world will go on forever and that that it it's generated in a way that it's trying to emulate the real world in certain ways. And that was when I finally played it, it was it was like eye opening for me. It was like, yes, this is this is what I, I've always thought games could be, could do. And it was kind of it it was held back, I think, by the fact that it was I mean, originally just made by one guy and then he got a team behind him. But it, it made me so hopeful for the future of video games. It's like, yes, now that now that Minecraft exists, now all these game developers are gonna start making games like this and I'll and I'll get the version of this game that looks like Skyrim, where I'll be able to do whatever I want. I don't. I don't know. I, I feel weird. I feel like the industry hasn't really sort of lived up to that expectation that I had. I don't know that it that it needs to necessarily. I mean, Minecraft is still a great game in its own, you know, in its own right. I just I was kind of hoping it would have a bigger impact on AAA development I, than it did. I feel like as the game gets more complex, not that Minecraft is is simple. I mean, there's tons of things to do in Minecraft now, but uh, that that gets exponentially harder the the better the graphics are the more realistic things look it's just it's super hard to do yeah i don't i and i would never argue that obviously um you know it was a, like a passion project for this dude who made this game and i think notch at one point said you know he was just making the game that he wanted to play but i i just imagined i was like man if one man can do this then what can you know what can a triple a studio do with this idea and I don't know that I've really I haven't seen that come to fruition yet. I'm I'm oh, I'm still hopeful though. All right, let's get this over with. Why do you like Why do you like Proteus in relation to procedural generation? <laughs> this is why I've been asking you guys what games you thought you. I, I knew it was coming. Procedural like, generation, just, the best. Just I was hoping Proteus. one of you would ask me. <laughs> 
Um, so Proteus uh, is a game where every time you load up a new game, it randomly generates an, a new island for you. And Mary, are you familiar with Proteus? Yes, but I don't think that I've... I think I've only scratched the surface. Well, there's not... I mean, if you played all the way through that game once, which doesn't take long, it's about 45 minutes to to go from start to the end of that game. I, you've done really everything there is to do in that game. But the reason I like the procedural generation in that game is because it really speaks to the theme. Proteus is a game about... Uh, in a lot of ways, it's a game about life and death. And when you start up a new game, um, it's a world that's uniquely your own. Um, it's not a multiplayer game. You're you're in this world by yourself, and that's and that's your island. And you exist on that island, and you get to play with the animals that live on that island, and walk through the trees on that island, um, and you get to live there and and see the seasons change. And then at the the end of that game, you essentially you your character passes away. I don't know if and, and, and there's Spoilers. probably multiple. Well, there's probably multiple interpretations. Yeah, for a, an indie game that at this point is like eight years old. I, yeah, I think it's I think it's past the point where of spoilers. Um. And that and then you can never return to that island. That island is you know was there. It was your island for that one time, and then. And then your character moves on and you can start a new island and have a new experience. But I think that the use of procedural generation in that case is not necessarily about making a game that's infinitely replayable. Um, but it's about generating a experience that is unique to you for that single playthrough. I played that game exactly twice. Once when you started talking about it and I was like, okay, I played through it and I was like, I, I don't get it. And then you just didn't stop talking about it for like three years. So yeah. I, they're like three years apart. I played it for the second time. Um, and I, I, I mean, it's it's not a game. <laughs> like, I, I get it. Like, I, I, I sort of get it. Like, I understand I mean, what could, you're trying to get at, but it, I just don't see the value the, of playing that game more than once. So the fact that it was We could argue the merits of that game all day long. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. Well, and I think we'll I a, think over the course of this podcast, Jared, I'm I'm going to try to convert you to seeing that game the way that, that I, I think it might be the think purpose it, of this podcast. Like if there was a just gaming just version of like, force it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's I, that's the only reason I really started this podcast. It's just this long <laughs> con to get Jared to like Proteus. <laughs> I, I I see Proteus as a gaming version of like uh, performance art, maybe, where it's it, it's its own thing. I don't know. I don't know. It kind of is. It kind of is. If I ever get Ed Key on this show, which I really want to do, you have to hold. You have to stick to your guns because I. I really. I'm. If we do ever get him on here, I want to. I want to like hear that conversation. I hope he's just like. He I don't know. I just made this game because I was bored and it has no meaning. <laughs> <laughs> he's. I mean, um, I. It's. It's nothing he's never heard before. I'm sure. It's a very divisive game. I don't. I would. I would never argue that it. You know. That it's not for some people. It's. It's. Because like you said, it's not really a game in the traditional sense. But for its purposes in this conversation about procedural generation, I think it nails it. It uses procedural generation in a way that is, it wouldn't be the same game without it. I agree. And I also it also succeeds in doing something that a lot of other games doesn't. Um, most games use procedural generation as a way to create 
uh, infinite content, um, stuff that you always want to experience. And Proteus does the opposite. It creates um, an infinite world for you and then destroys it. Um, what's unique about that is that it's taking the concept of infinite and um, in a negative way. So there's infinite worlds and you can never have yours again. Uh, it's gone. It's yeah. this very unique experience. So the idea of like instead of endless replayability and um, being able to, to have it again and again and again, I don't want to because I had it and I want it back and I can't. Um, so what a cool feeling to invoke in a player besides look at all these things that you can't have. Yeah. Um, you can't get my experience. I can't give it to you. I can't give you the world that I saw and you yeah. you can't give me yours. Um, so I think being able to reach you in that sense is is really beautiful and touching and I think that's exactly what they were they were going for. So in that sense that game is is a, a tremendous accomplishment that it, it can it can invoke that kind of feeling in a player. Emptiness um, which is strange. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mary, for taking my side. At least there's one person <laughs> on this podcast who appreciates Proteus the way I do. <laughs> Maybe I hate walking there. Sims, but yeah, I like don't like. Oh no, she said the W word. <laughs> I don't like it. I, I, I like. I tend to like him. I really enjoyed Gone Home. I really want to play um, What Remains of Edith Finch, but play What Remains of Edith Finch. That one got me, and I do not like walking Sims. Right. What's the one where you follow light? Oh, uh, everyone's gone to the Rapture. Oh yeah, I haven't played that one. Is that not a fan? No. <laughs> no. And it's funny because I typically don't like walking simulator games. I I feel like they're trying to deliver a traditional video game narrative without any of the video game mechanics. But I love Proteus, so I don't know. Try and explain that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's it's doing its own thing. I guess it depends on like the the developer's goal, right? Yeah, exactly. What do we want to see from the like in the future? How do we want to see um, procedural generation utilized in the future of video game design? Um, I want to see. I, I am starting to get there. Um, we were talking about like our favorites or the ones that do it the best, and I want to say the one my favorite to me uh, personally is Downwell. Uh, Downwell is like this tremendous procedurally generated game also made by one dude where you just go down a well and every time it's different because where everything is is made is is unique and uh um, so much like Spelunky it's the rules are there but they bend them in a way where you always feel like you're playing a unique game and as long as you get good you can uh you can destroy it and I think we're getting there we're getting these amazing indie games that are willing to take the risk and what I'd like to see is a triple a site or like um, a triple A studio to take the risk and put in the money to make a game that is procedurally generated with the graphics that we deserve, um, but not ruining it because they got too greedy. It's not about hours played. <laughs> it's about the quality and making a game that succeeds at your goal. And that shouldn't be play forever. It should, it should be, to get to a particular goal. I think we are going to get there. I think that like, you know, if we thought that developers didn't see Minecraft and went, Hmm, you're wrong. They saw it and, and you're seeing it in games now. Um, I think the closest, no, I'm not going to say the closest, but like shadow of Mordor 
uh, teased this. Um, the the brains of like all the orcs um, are all procedurally generated. So if you fight mm-hmm. somebody and you die to them, they remember that this is this is happening. And you're going to see that more. Shadow of Mortar won like a lot of Game of the Year awards, and they're winning these awards because they're pushing the boundaries of of what games are. Instead of being constructed, they're letting computers generate worlds and minds for you. Nobody's ever done that before. Like we've never seen that. So it is happening. It's happening slowly, and you're gonna see more games start chipping away at at uh, what procedural generation can do. Now, how about you, Jared? What do you want to see in the future of uh, video games and procedural generation? This might be me like cannibalizing my own profession because I work in TV as a story producer, and I've already started seeing like you hear you start hearing um, AIs creating just new shows. Like an AI designed the show. Like, it's like people love Chris Pratt and um, Jennifer Lawrence, so let's make a space movie about that and. Pretty soon, people are there's already studies that like will have storytelling that is assembled completely by AI. While that's super like that, the first thing is like that scares the shit out of me. I'm like, man, like what what jobs are going to be left if the creative even the creative jobs go away? But I would like to see like procedural storytelling in games. I think that's super interesting, and we're we're starting to see that like with Shadow of Mordor. You're like, oh, there's this one this one orc that it killed me like five times, and that's like a very unique experience to that player. So to have stuff like that and being able to blur those seams, like you said, Spelunky does so well, bending the seams to where you don't notice it. You don't see the game part, the gamey parts of it. Uh, that's what I'm really looking forward to. So while creative computer storytelling is absolutely frightening in some aspects, it's, I think it's also has a lot of potential to be really cool. Yeah, I don't think you can understate how important that idea of AI created story is going to be for the future of video games. Um, there's, I have another article here from Gama Sutra. It's called Seven Uses of Procedural Generation That All Developers Should Study. Uh, and just a quick quote from it says A recent Georgia Tech project produced an automatic level generator for Super Mario Bros. with an algorithm that learned by watching YouTube videos. And this is like pretty amazing to me. And this is this was one of like several examples they gave of um, AI that that's making essentially making games for players. But I think that's I think that's the future. And not to say that there's not going to be a human component to all of this that, that it's going to completely remove all need for writers and artists and 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 people to actually come up with the the central ideas for a game. But in the way that like in D&D you can walk up to an NPC and ask them, you know, what what color is a birch tree and you know the, they'll be able to answer you. It's a totally random question, but as you you know, your DM will be able to answer for that NPC. I I'm really excited for the day when in video games I can say, I'm not going to follow the story. I'm going to go over over here and and interact with these NPCs that weren't, you know, wasn't intended and and ha- actually have them have some sort of story to give me or use that procedural generation to have those NPCs kind of get me back on track, which I guess would be the more ideal solution for those situations. So I think AI and procedural generation, I don't know if it's going to happen anytime soon, but I think we will get to that point where it it becomes a a huge part of game design. 
I'm just going to say Elon Musk warned us of all of this. I'm just going to say that now for the record. And then if, if it... <laughs> I, read a, I read a quote and it was like, what kind of a horrible world have we created when robots taking our jobs is a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> like, doesn't that sound like the best when he's like, oh yeah, I'll, now we all have time to just enjoy ourselves and we can play the games that robots make for us and uh, we don't have to go to work because robots are doing our jobs. But <laughs> Somebody like... has to fix the robots. They're going to need <laughs> oil. And in oh, that, just... we will never die. Yeah, we're in... just make a robot that oils other robots. Oh, <laughs> Steve, <laughs> just stop, stop. Do you guys play a uh, uh, Rocket League ever? Yes. Um, we used to have a theory. Um, GameSpot loves Rocket League. We, we used to, we still do actually. We still like get together and, and play it a lot. And um, you know, like how there's like all those dots in the um, audience. Yes. Um, they're kind of like little colored blobs. No one really knows what they are, but sometimes they jump up and down when you score a goal. And we like to think that. That's the AI in the future, and uh, humanity has no purpose left but to drive cars for the amusement of AI. Because oh, God. <laughs> we are the most unpredictable of all the creatures. So we just drive cars for their amusement and make each other explode, and the dots jump up and down and then go back to doing their, their work. But they oh keep God. us focused on rocket league i i would this, read that get this idea to spielberg yeah yeah i want to i want to read this fan fiction yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the dots man <laughs> i i would i'm not a big reader i would read that book <laughs> yeah we have all sorts of like weird theories too about that kind of stuff we used to also think um this is my favorite one that you know like uh a lot of popular journalism is being replaced with like youtubers who uh play games uh, just for fun funsies and they they're like uh, amassing a following and so like everyone's like oh journalism's dead youtube is the future yeah um well we used to joke that in like 50 years when journalism is dead and youtubers are the prime then ai game reviewers will start coming out and they'll be more popular because the second a game comes out like in five seconds like a robot will be like reviewed you know seven out of ten <laughs> and like they like can play it before youtubers can and youtubers will be all mad because they're gonna be like damn it like these robots are taking our jobs they think they're so great so they'll like they'll like plan they'll like spend 20 minutes like constructing this amazing tweet to a robot like you know what you think you're that great but you know you're never gonna replace us youtubers and the second they hit send a reply will automatically generate by the robot that's better and it'll have like 4,000 likes and YouTubers will just be like, no, like we can't, we can't beat these robots. And so like robot reviewers are going to be better than anything else in the next 50 years. And we're all going to just be putting oil in them. So get really good at it. I don't know how to change the oil on my car. So I'm, I'm doomed in this future that you've proposed. <laughs> Enjoy your life now. <laughs> I mean, everything's cyclical. Maybe uh, gaming magazines will make a resurgence. People, well, yeah, <laughs> like like uh, vinyl records, man. Yeah, maybe it'll happen. It'll come back. The old I mean, it's classics the only, will come back. Only way that uh, we can communicate without the robots downvoting all of our stuff. Uh, let's move on to our listener emails. If you have any questions or comments about procedural generation or any of our previous topics, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, we're still 
we're always soliciting ideas for topics. So if you're like Mary and you have a great idea for something you want to hear us talk about, send it in. These guys um, will talk about anything. We will literally talk about idea, anything. Like and they took it. Po- post-apocalyptic uh, Rocket League theories, like top ten <laughs> fan cast. Okay, so uh, our first comment comes from Nick Shades on Twitter. Uh, last episode, we were talking about uh, release dates, and some unreleased games came out. And one of the games that I brought up was uh, Thrill Kill for the PlayStation, which was a really weird game, uh, super violent. It was almost done, and it just didn't get released. But Nick Shades pointed out, he said, Thrill Kill was an amazing game. I had a pirated version on a modded PlayStation, and it was good times. So yeah, I looked into that, and apparently the game just leaked out everywhere. It was it was pretty much finished. There is a playable version of it out there, and I've kind of made uh, my, my short-term goals to to track one down because I really wanted nice. to play Thrill Kill when I read about it. it sounds like uh, like Star Fox 2 when that got yeah, that yeah, got and that's, that's going to come out. Like, all right, here it it leaked out on the internet somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but now we get to play it for real. If if you can yeah. get your hands on the SNES Classic, there will be five of them. <laughs> God, I hope I get one, man. Mary, do you oh, have man. any? Uh, do you can you remember any games that you're really looking forward to that just never came out? Yeah, um, I was like a big fan of Ico and Shadow of the Colossus. So there was a game that I was waiting forever to come out. Um, but it did come out. So I won. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We talked, we talked about that, um, in the last episode, that is like a whole, I don't know, like science experiment in and of itself. Like, can I, you know, can you start making a game in the PlayStation two era and release it in the PlayStation four era and still have it succeed? That game, the whole story behind that game is so fascinating to me. I think The Last Guardian is uh, a really fascinating example. Now, there is that game was um, uh, conflicted with its reviews. Um, I was on the side that it's tremendous, and I obviously love their previous games, so I'm like in the zone. Uh, Team Ico is like always something that I I was like following all their work, so I was like super down with The Last Guardian, every aspect of it. Um, but like the hunger that I had for a game kept saying that it was getting delayed or, you know, the lead developer was leaving. And then I think there was rumors that it was canceled like three times. It's just like heartbreaking. But I I did win in the end. So I kind of feel like I just told this story to brag because I did get it. And it yeah. was awesome. And everyone I, should play it. I don't, I don't know if um, I don't know if we've linked the article on our Twitter yet, but I I, um, I was recently researching that game and uh, they were talking to the uh, the lead developer and he was saying like he left the you know one of the studios that he was uh, working on Last Guardian at and it, and you know for most other games that almost like signifies that the game is dead you know like when the lead developer leaves and the project is essentially canceled but for him yeah. he was saying it was like it opened the door for him to complete that game that it, it freed him up to do the things that he wanted to do when he transitioned studios. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's a good story. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, do we have any more feedback, Jared? No, that's it for feedback. Uh, we have a running tally that we're taking, Mary, on all of our guests on uh, to see if they're, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, it. Uh, if they've seen the light, I guess. Are, are you, do you invert or your y-axis or are you standard? Standard. I do not invert. Oh, I understand the concept. 
<laughs> I do not it's... saw an image once about how it works and it really helped me understand it because I used to think it was insanity to do inverted but then I realized you like imagine it's like a stick like a game mm -hmm. stick yeah, and absolutely. the head's on the end of it so if you hit down the other end of the stick goes up and that makes a lot of sense mentally for me see I just keep thinking of um, Skinner from Simpsons when he says uh, if I lost touch with everybody else, no, it's everyone. No, it's everyone else who's wrong. The children. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. The of. children. Like, no, you guys just don't wrong. get it. No. Yeah, Jared. Jared and I play. Uh, we play inverted controls, and so far, I think one hundred percent of our guests have played standard. Yeah, I think we just need to cancel the podcast. It's just not working out. <laughs> Ask the There's robots. There's actually one little, one last little thing that I wanted to bring up, which was a tweet that we got from Ashley. She said, hey, GB feature, episode suggestion, badass female video game characters. Short and sweet. I like it. I guess that's sort of the point of Twitter. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'm, o I'm yeah. open to that. Yeah, this is... Uh, so thank you, Ashley, for the suggestion. It The idea of addressing um, the representation of women in video games is something that it, it's on our it's on our big ass list of of episode topics to talk about, but that is a whole thing to get into. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know that. Well, well, part of it is the fact that I I don't know that I'm like I'm equipped with the with the language necessary to like properly address representation of women in games. I mean, it's something I I definitely feel passionate about and really really hope to get to. Um, at some point, but we got to find a guest who's much smarter than myself to come on here and, and talk about that stuff. Absolutely, I, I think I think it's I cool. I could probably give you guys some recommendations. Yeah, the robots scour the interwebs. <laughs> we'll know that one. I mean, there's beyond <laughs> more than enough examples at this stage to address such a topic, right? I mean, even even back in the day, there was countless examples. I mean, like Lara Croft, or you know, like there's like Mass Effect that uses tremendous video game protagonists examples um but the focus of it is always a tricky one to me because doing it for the sake of it isn't really i don't even know if it even accomplishes what i'd like it to which is like check out all these lady characters we're here where it's like well we've always been here um yeah we were we're never not um so i think uh the evolution is something that that might be interesting um i mean we've always had badass ladies um metroid but yeah. to to watch um the evolution of their character development is something that's really fascinating to me so um that's probably like a better way to attack it than just um video games have women too it's like well no shit and they're awesome yeah. but like there's there's value in in the the progress of of watching them have different roles, um, which which I don't think they did as much. Um, so that's something really cool. That's like an interesting concept around it. We've we've done an episode on video game violence in the past, and we we're kind of we're breaking it into like smaller parts for episodes, so we're not just discussing video game violence in general. And then <laughs> how can we a, solve you know, this six hour? Forty-five yeah. minutes. So I think with the you know with uh, representations of women and acceptance of women in video games, it's definitely going to be I think one of those things where we have to 
sort of break it down piece by piece. There's a there's a really great video series from Feminist Frequency called Tropes vs. Women in Games that kind of already does this. Uh, and if, if you haven't seen it, I really encourage uh, everyone listening to go check that video out. Yeah, we tweeted it a couple weeks ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Anita and her team over there, they, they do a really good job of, you know, segmenting it into easily understandable bite-sized components and then providing not only examples of, of each of their points, but also um, like how, how it impacts women in the real world. Um, so I think that's, I think that's kind of the way that we would probably approach it. But again, I, it's one of those topics that I want to be really, really careful to do, uh, to do justice to it. Cause you know, it, it's me and Jared, it's like two dudes, you know, we're not, <laughs> I don't think we're equipped to have the, uh, a conversation and, and really, um, get at all of the issues surrounding it. I'm sure. Maybe, but I think it's uh, you guys' perspectives are really valued. And um, it would be no different than me having an opinion on uh, male protagonists, right? And I'm allowed to do that. And I've done, you know, if you've done your research and you've played a lot of these games, then there's something to unearth from that. And I am very fascinated in your opinions about it. Um, something that Femme Freak did really well um, was engage conversation. So I would watch lots of their videos and there would be countless times where I'd be like, you know, I don't agree with that, but I'll tell you what it did do. It made me go to other people and be like, what do you think of this? And when you talk about it, you learn. So you don't have to agree with the opinions, um, these very controversial, you know, black and white opinions. You do, you don't have to take a side, but the, conversation at all can be quite fascinating and can help you uncover a lot of things about yourself and about uh, the people around you. Um, and that, that is the value of it. So I would say, you know, it doesn't really matter who you guys are. Your opinion is super valid. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to hear. That's like, I think our, the main goal of our podcast was just to foster discussion, not necessarily uh, change anyone's mind or, or, tell people how to make games so yeah it could be the uh tagline of all podcasts which is <laughs> it doesn't matter who we are our opinion is valid <laughs> <laughs> cool well again thank you ashley for sending in the suggestion and uh thank you nick for sending in the tweet about thrill kill man i i didn't realize that uh, i'm gonna find it that that game had leaked out yeah dude when you find it let me know how it is all right it's probably I, terrible I, by today's standards but i don't even care probably, <laughs> it was probably terrible by then standards also but it was uh limb dismemberment it's a thing so yeah all right cool well that's going to do it for this episode before we get out of here i want to thank our guest mary kish mary thank you so much for being here this is a this has been a really great episode uh where can people find your work how can they keep up with you uh thank you guys so much for having me i had an awesome time being on the podcast and um you guys can uh follow my work um probably it's easiest to just follow my twitter it's mary kish spelled m-e-r-r-y uh, Kish. And uh, that's because even though at GameSpot I was constantly on camera and, and uh, doing videos at, at Twitch, I, I'm more often behind the scenes producing shows um, and live streams. And that's something that I've really enjoyed doing recently. So you guys can always find some of my work recently. I helped uh, 
produced a show called Fresh Stock. It's about sneaker culture. It's rad. Um, if you guys have ever been interested in such a weird concept or topic, uh, we have three dudes that are absolutely fascinated and really knowledgeable about sneakers. And they go over all the latest things in sneaker culture and just go over like uh, new collaborations, uh, artistic visions, and uh, talk about style. I always love hearing people talk about things that they're really passionate about that I just have no clue. And they that's like the very specific interest of theirs. That's it, it's always very fascinating to me. So I'm going to check that out for sure. Well, and yeah, you said if, if you're interested in sneaker culture, check the show out. But I would say just anyone check the show out because uh, I watched a few of the episodes and uh, I'm not someone who, who really cares that much about shoes and even I was like holy cow man it, it's like it's tight that there's people in the world that are that are this passionate about this thing and then also there's just some really dope shoes on there I mean I'm not <laughs> again I'm not a shoe person but I'm like man I I would wear an all gold Michael Jordan shoe <laughs> I would do it it's really fascinating I've never done a show like that before it's on Thursdays at 11 a.m on twitch.tv slash twitch and then I do all of our E3s, our PAXs, things of that nature. So if you ever want to see what's going on at a live show event, you can always find me on the Twitch channel on our generic Twitch channel. So twitch.tv slash Twitch. That stuff is me. Um, so that's all my work. And sometimes I host. Sometimes when I'm feeling it. You'll see me out there screaming about indie games and other things you guys should play. Oh, and I also do indie LP. That's Mondays at 8 p.m. Yeah, I play a new indie game every week. And I also take recommendations. So you guys tweet at me. I'll play the indie games that you guys want me to play. Well, thanks so much for coming on our show. I'm a big fan, and I was really excited to have you. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this show every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. Lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, thank you, guys. Thank you. See you guys later.